Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another action-packed episode on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and with video here on YouTube. Uh, This has been quite a packed week for me with doing that little bonus video on Thursday for the review of the master, so I didn't put together any big, long, formal script here or anything for this week's podcast. I'm just sort of talking off a few notes that I made. And this is something that uh, we're going to be addressing this topic of the anti-Scientology cult, or the cult of the anti-Scientology cult, or whatever you want to call this thing, uh, is this kind of older idea, uh, which I'll talk about where it came from. But this idea that the ex-Scientology community as a whole is one big great cult. And we're all enthralled to a few thought leaders or opinion leaders within this group who dictate what we all believe and think and say. And somehow um, this is, uh, you know, supposed to be some, it's an accusation and a representation that's made of, uh, a, a gross misrepresentation, I should say, that is made of a whole bunch of different people who are speaking out or have spoken out at some point in the past, even if they're not doing so now, as though we're all part of this big harmonious effort. And uh, and I can tell you just from the get-go, spoiler alert, we're not. (laughs) But I wanted to discuss this and kind of dive into some of the claims that have been made about this over the last couple of years. Um, because I get asked about it, and in fact, this whole thing was based on a, a, a question that somebody asked me, uh, based on some postings that had been done by Alan Stansfield, uh, also known as Alonzo. He's got this blog, and he posts things, and uh, of course, this harkens back to the time of Marty Rathbun. So this is, you know, for guys who have been around for a while, been Scientology watchers for a while, you'll know some of these names and the things that I'm talking about here. For anybody who's new to all of this, well, I'm not going to get you up to speed in, you know, just a little short hour here about all of this. But Marty Rathbun was a a former Scientologist who came out in the mid-2000s, was literally second in charge of Scientology under David Miscavige for a period of time. He had his ups and downs and, and various uh, vicissitudes within the Church of Scientology, but he finally took off. And he went to Texas, and he started delivering Scientology auditing under his own name, and the church doesn't like that. And, of course, David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology, took it very personally and started attacking Marty. And uh, to make a very long story short, Marty ended up taking the church to court, actually his wife did, who was never a Scientologist, for harassment and stalking because Scientology was going after them in a pretty big way uh, with Scientology's fair game tactics. And uh, that court case was being, you know, we all sort of thought that that was sort of championing our cause and was moving some some things forward in the legal arena that we really wanted to see happen, including getting a formal deposition from David Miscavige. They had gotten to the point where the court had ordered a written deposition to be done. David Miscavige is absolutely terrified. He is a coward. I mean, the coward of the highest order. And he was terrified of going into deposition or entering into a court of law or even via paperwork. And so uh, whatever happened, suddenly the court case was dropped. Marty Rathman slipped out of public sight shortly thereafter and then reappeared uh, on his blog and with a series of videos that were all pro-Scientology. And he had a complete reversal. He then was uh, calling out former Scientologists, myself by name, in a blog article that he wrote, and then Leah and Mike Rinder, uh, of course Leah Remini, Mike Rinder, uh, and other critics, and and accused all of us of being part of this anti-Scientology cult, which was pretty fascinating. Uh, This was around August of 2017 that this started going down. And it was a big, huge surprise. Lots and lots of people in the critic community and Scientology watchers 
who by definition are people who were never involved with Scientology but have become fascinated by it and have been following the work of, you know, myself, Leah, Mike, etc. Uh, and Marty. Marty was a big critic in the, in the X world and he was really leading the charge in some ways, especially with this court case. But after he did his reversal and started speaking out against the critic community and saying how uh, it was a cult, well, clearly a whole lot of people in the community had a huge problem with that. Nobody could really understand what was going on. And the basic assumption that was made was that the church had paid him off or had somehow uh, found some kind of blackmail material on him or does, you know, did something that the Church of Scientology does <laughs> to take him out of the equation. And, um, and he also, by the way, um, totally screwed over his lawyers in the process of what he did because they didn't end up earning a dime for any of the work that they did. And he fired and dismissed them all. Uh, and there you go. So that's kind of the, the short backstory on where this comes from, this idea comes from. Up until Marty posted blog articles and then made videos about the anti-Scientology cult, this was never a thing. Nobody ever that I had ever heard of had ever said or inferred or implied anything like this. So I don't know if it was his brainchild or some idea from the Office of Special Affairs that they gave to Marty in order for him to carry the, the you know, uh, flag and, and be the the, uh, <laughs> what do you call it, the, in the vanguard of, of the fight against all the people who had been rallying around Marty Rathbun and his court case and his cause. He had received monetary support. He had received moral support. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people who were very invested in that court case and seeing it through. And it was a massive betrayal of, of the trust of a whole lot of people. Now, Marty Rathbun apparently doesn't care about any of that, and that's no surprise because it turns out Marty Rathbun never really cared about anybody else but himself. So, there you go. Um, now, there was this guy, Alan Stansfield, sort of picked up the, the flag after Marty sort of did all these videos. He disappeared, and nobody really knows a whole lot about what he's up to or what he's doing. He's he disconnected from everybody in the ex-Scientology community. So one can only assume that he's been paid off uh, financially by the church and uh, went out in the worst possible way you could go out uh, as, a, as a critic. And that's, that's really too bad. But, you know, lo and behold, Alonzo is uh, the new torchbearer and he has been posting articles on his blog, which is viewed by hardly anybody and there's really not a whole lot of reason to talk about it except that I've been asked about it. So. I thought I should address this whole thing really head-on and sort of debunk this entire concept of an anti-Scientology cult. Uh, the idea that, <laughs> that all of us are unified under any banner at all uh, is quite, is, is, is just complete nonsense, uh, as, I'll, as I'll go into in some detail here. The claims, basically, that are made about the critic community or the, the ex-Scientology or, or Scientology critic community is, uh, there's a few claims. Okay, first off, the claim is uh, that there is no such thing as brainwashing, that that is a fantasy, doesn't exist, there is no uh, psychological or social science behind it of any kind, and, uh, and how, you know, and it's just pseudoscience and, and why do we talk about that? Uh, let's see, then we'll go through, I'll address these uh, as we, as I'll, I'm going to go through all the claims first and then I'm going to sort of take on, take them on or, or get into debunking them. Uh, critics talk in big generalities and exaggerations. We, we engage in a lot of hyperbole is the, is the next assertion on this. This uh, comes straight out of Marty Rathbun's mouth, actually, and he uh, accuses Mike and Leah of outright lying. Uh, exaggerating the facts, uh, making false, you know, claims uh, about how bad Scientology is, the abuses in Scientology. Well, uh, of course, having lived through it for 27 years myself, uh, none of the claims that Leah and Mike have made are exaggerated. And if there were any real legal basis for Leah and Mike's show, The Scientology in the Aftermath, or even Going Clear, the film by Alex Gibney and the book by Lawrence Wright, if any of those works 
were demonstrably false in any way, then why would the Church of Scientology, with its unlimited legal fund, not sue for libel, slander, defamation? I mean, why not? They've got the money for it. They've certainly got the lawyers for it. Uh, well, the truth is that the truth is on our side, and Scientology is not about to uh, file any, any lawsuits against Leah or Mike or uh, Alex Gibney or Lawrence Wright or any of those people, So, because they have no case. Um, and that would be uh, actually a, a fairly substantial uh, sign of evidence that they, you know, that all this talk is just so much talk. Uh, another claim, the big critics, Leah, Mike, etc., censor any views that don't align with theirs. Uh, impossible, but that's the claim. Uh, they accuse Scientology of what they are doing. Okay, well, that's just your back and forth ad hominem. Uh, they make out that there is nothing wrong with someone who has been in a cult. And by, by nothing wrong, I mean psychologically, like there's no need for any kind of therapy, counseling, recovery. In fact, they ridicule the entire recovery process, uh, make it out as though it's, it's just so much hot air. Uh, having lived through it myself, uh, and I will talk about this more, uh, that is horseshit, <laughs> in a word. Uh, there has been a tremendous amount of work and recovery uh, that I have done over the last six years, and I have been uh, done many episodes here on Monks, in the Sensibly Speaking podcast and other uh, media that I put out that has made it very clear that there are a number of things that one must get through and recover from. But like I said, we'll go into more of that in, in some detail. They quote uh, new religious movement academics as though they have any idea what they're talking about. I did a whole series uh, here on this channel of what, what I call the Deconstructing Scientology series, and that was a chapter-by-chapter -chapter breakdown of an academic work on the, on the Church of Scientology and its beliefs and practices that was not put out by the Church of Scientology. It was, it was an academic work. It was a, a compendium of, of papers that had been written by academics from all over the world in, basically in support of the Church of Scientology. There were a couple uh, articles or essays uh, or papers that were in the book that were somewhat, uh, you know, acknowledged some of the controversy or acknowledged some of the problems with the belief system but not one of the articles or essays took up any of the physical abuses or uh, torture or, you know, uh, wrongful imprisonment or uh, psychological abuse. I mean, all of that was just whitewashed and, and sort of ignored. And basically, the work might as well have been produced by Scientology because most of the academics, in an ex extreme display of, of laziness, uh, simply took Scientology's promotional materials and used that as though it was uh, the, you know, God's given truth and wrote academic papers, uh, academic grade papers, uh, touting Scientology's uh, beliefs and tenets and as, as a good thing. And so I, I, I call these guys NRM or New Religious Movement Academics because that's, they refer to the Church of Scientology as a new religious movement. And that and other destructive cults are given a whole lot of air cover by these academics, uh, speaking from their ivory towers, from their university positions. They don't know really much of anything about Scientology. They don't go do any Scientology. One, one of these uh, academics actually tried to go get an auditing session and, and talked about that. But uh, other than that, these people really have no idea what they're talking about, and they simply forward the church's propaganda. So, uh, so to quote such academics is the height of intellectual dishonesty. And um, yeah, that's pretty much all I will say about that. Although you can refer to my entire series. I did hours of videos breaking down their arguments and showing why it is that each and every one of these academics uh, was paid off, I don't know, was somehow um, cajoled, coerced, uh, whatever, or they simply are delusional in the first place. <laughs> and so they, you know, sort of put these papers together about all this, and I broke all that down, and I'll put a, um, I'll put a link to the uh, playlist of all of those videos in the show notes here for this episode. 
And finally, they assert that there is no such thing as manipulation or coercive persuasion. And this falls in with they know such thing as brainwashing. So first off, in terms of this no brainwashing claim, uh, brainwashing is a term that comes out of the 1950s. It was first researched seriously by a man named Robert J. Lifton, who interviewed uh, survivors of Chinese re-education camps coming out of the uh, revolution in China in the 1950s and, and uh, he interviewed these people from the 50s and 60s. Um, a lot of, a lot more work has been done by other academics and, and researchers since then. And so in the 50s, there was this sort of fear, this sort of communist propaganda and, and paranoia about brainwashing and about a Manchurian candidate. And they even made that movie with Frank Sinatra, which was remade years later with Denzel Washington, uh, called The Manchurian Candidate, where you could supposedly take somebody and put them through a series of uh, abusive, torturous processes and implant in them the idea or command to, say, assassinate a political leader or somebody of else of importance. And this Manchurian candidate would, would not even know that they were brainwashed, that, they, that this implanting had been done, and they would go and carry out the orders that they were given as though they were, you know, mindless robotic automatons. Uh, violate their moral code, violate their ethics, violate their upbringing, their education, etc. Well, turns out, no, that doesn't really exist as such. I mean, you can hypnotize people, you can get them to do things, so I shouldn't say it doesn't exist entirely, but it is a very, very difficult process, and it is not something that will work on 100% of the people. Uh, that is absolutely... Uh, fact that not everybody can be hypnotized and not everybody who can be hypnotized can be made to violate their moral code or ethical codes uh, or education or culture or whatever. Uh, it's a very, very specific group of people and with very specific traits that can be hypnotized that deeply and be made to do things that they wouldn't otherwise normally do. So, yeah, brainwashing according to the paranoia of the 50s, yeah, that doesn't exist. But to think that there's no such thing as manipulation or control or coercive persuasion, I mean, okay, well, there is. You can lie to somebody in an attempt to manipulate them, and if they buy into your lies, they will act in an irrational way to the degree that they have bought into whatever lies you've told them. They're not operating on objective truth or reality. They're operating on the information you gave them. And if that information is faulty or wrong, then they can end up doing some pretty wild and crazy things, very destructive and abusive things even. So I don't think it really takes, you know, me laying all of this out. It's, this isn't rocket science, right? You can just through lies, you can manipulate and distort a person's reality to the point that they will engage in wholly irrational behavior that they feel is wholly rational and justified because they're operating on this false or wrong information. Um, that is how cults, that's how destructive cults recruit people. That's how destructive cults manage and control people is through deception and through uh, coercive persuasion. They coerce a person. So th there's an element of emotional or financial or physical blackmail um, where they, you know, a person who's in one of these destructive cult situations where they've bought into this belief system. It's an extremist belief system. They've bought into the, the code of conduct and the guidelines and the rules. And so they start operating as a cult member, and then they start thinking maybe when one fine day they start having questions about what's going on, and they think, hmm, maybe this isn't really what I should be doing. But then if they raise a voice in criticism or questioning, then the powers that be within the cult will start exerting pressure on them. That pressure is uh, both peer pressure and authoritarian pressure, and the pressure is all in the direction of uh, getting the person to see that they are wrong and the cult is right. And if they don't kowtow and start, you know, towing the line, 
then shunning or disconnection is an, is an ultimate price that could be paid. But there are lots of little prices that can be paid before you get to the shunning. It's not zero to 60. Is There is a whole lot of in-between steps where a person will be made to do degrading or debasing physical labor, uh, will be made to accused of wrongdoing. Uh, in Scientology, you are told that the only reason you're critical of Scientology at all is because of your own, what they call overt acts, your own sins, your own uh, moral transgressions. And, uh, and they assert this quite heavily. And they make you sit in a room and write down all of your moral transgressions or your overts for hours and days on end. I, I have been through that process and I have made other people go through that process when I was in Scientology. So I'm not, this isn't just some fanciful, you know, fanciful sort of imaginatory uh, line I'm making up here. This is what we used to do. And that kind of pressure on a person, you know, compounded with the belief system and the guidelines and all the rest of the thing that they've bought into, this whole, it's called milieu control. This goes back to Lifton again from the 50s, right? I, I even have his book back here. I mean, it's one of the books I have in my, in my library. This milieu control, this control of the environment is very, very important for a destructive cult to operate at all. So people can be pressured through all kinds of means and ends to, uh, to kowtow and toe the line. All of that is the kind of thing that we would now refer to as brainwashing. Because a person who wants to do one thing but is forced to do another thing and then agrees to that other thing and sort of, you know, puts their questions aside, moves their free will to the back, you know, gives over their will to others as a, as a habit, which is what happens in these cults, uh, this is a person who is not operating on their own free will. They are being uh, manipulated. They are being guided. They are being pushed in various directions. And can a person overcome that? Yes, a person can overcome that, but it takes a great force of will. And not everybody is equipped to deal with that kind of pressure or deal with those that kind of um, individuality, expressing their own individuality, right? Uh, a lot of people are very, very shy, very, very timid. They are not particularly uh, willing to stand up, arms akimbo, and look around and say, I am me and everything I have to say or think is, is what I will do. You know, people want agreement. They want to get along with other people. So uh, these kind of pressures can make them feel very uncomfortable. They're designed to make them uncomfortable. <laughs> so that's the sort of, that, those deceptive practices and blackmail and coercive persuasion and these kind of things that are done to people, these are done on purpose. This is not, uh, <laughs> this isn't an accidental manipulation. This is a very direct and very forceful and very purposeful effort on the part of the cult leader and his lieutenants or his or her lieutenants and, and subordinates to exert pressure on the membership and keep them in line. So that, uh, that's the kind of thing we, we refer to as brainwashing. <laughs> At least that's how I think about it. Uh, and every time I've talked about it, that's, these are the kind of things I've talked about. I have broken down all of these mechanisms in great detail in my, my podcasts and, and videos. Now, there is a thing here that people are going to favor their own group no matter what or how arbitrary that group is. See, there's another phenomenon. There's, there's so many psychological and sociological sort of sort of principles or, or phenomena at work with all of this. And one of them is the basic fundamental social personalities that we all have. It's built into us to be social animals. We are selfish animals too, but we are mostly social. And that sociality is how we have survived all of these years. There is no individual uh, person, I think, anywhere in the world who is living a life all on their own with no help or guidance or direction or assistance uh, or contributions from other human beings. I, I don't know a single person anywhere who's, who's living that way. Maybe there's a few people out uh, living alone 
uh, in the forests or the, the jungles somewhere, right? But I don't know who they are, and they are certainly not in touch with anybody else because then they might be being contributed to by other human beings, right? We can all agree that whether there are such people or not, they would be statistically such a tiny, tiny, tiny number of people that it would be statistically irrelevant or insignificant. Most of us have to get along with other people. And our minds are tuned towards tribalism. We're just, we're, it's built into us. So modern human beings <laughs> can group on almost any arbitrary idea at all. You could take a group of people, bring them into a room. You can, in fact, this has been done. Uh, studies have been done on this, and I'm not going to cite them all here and read from them. I'm just going to tell you that studies have been done that where students, for example, have been taken into a room and by the toss of a coin divided into the reds and the blues, you know, or the, the guys who like soup and the guys who don't. Uh, you know, you can take any arbitrary division, and as soon as you have split people up, immediately they start tuning in to in-group mentality with the other members of their group. They might not have anything else in common but this one thing that they have been divided up into. And so you might have the reds and the blues, right? And the reds are automatically, the brains are automatically tuning in to favor their teammates and dislike, actually have some antipathy towards the opposing team or group. And that will actually affect their perception of the other group and their perception of their own group. This is called in-group and out-group. Lots and lots and lots of studies and science are behind all of this. And we know that there can actually be changes, skewed perception, vision, hearing, uh, between you know, for example, let's say somebody in the red group makes some innocuous comment about something. Well, the people in the red group are going to, you know, they're not going to take offense at, what that, at that innocuous comment. But if the same comment were made by somebody over in the blue group, <gasps> what? He said that? You're kidding. Oh, that scumbag, right? I mean, it's, it, it automatically, this all just, just immediately starts happening uh, because it's, it, we're instinctively built to do this sort of thing. Uh, and there's lots and lots and lots of science explaining all of that. So, so people will, you know, they're automatically group-oriented and, and in-group-oriented and out-group-oriented, right? I think I'm making the point, getting the point across there. But let's take a look now. You know, that all being said, you could then say, well, Chris, you said earlier that there is no anti-Scientology cult because, you know, there's, there's this group of people who are all ex-Scientologists and they all identify as ex-Scientologists or, or Scientology haters or they don't like Scientology, they want Scientology to be gone. So doesn't that make them all a group and aren't they, an in, you know, isn't there an in-group mentality that forms then versus the other group, Scientology or the world at large? Well, yes, of course there is. But there's some, other, there's some other factors here that I'd like to bring up in terms of what this, how this group behaves and acts. Because it's, this is not just a normal, regular group of people. Uh, the ex-Scientology world or any, any destructive cult, I mean, because the Jehovah's Witnesses have support groups and, and, and there's a body of people who are former Jehovah's Witnesses who speak out against it, who are critics of it. Everything I'm saying here applies to them too, or the former Mormons, or former Hare Krishnas, or former Democrats. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter when it comes to these cults, okay? So I actually sort of negate what I just said there about Democrats, because it's really not the same thing. Uh, the Democratic Party, despite what, what some people on the right might think, is not a cult any more than the people on the right are a cult. Not a single unified body of thought. That's just, that's just not, not how it is. Um, so the members of a group of people who have come out of a destructive cult have certain things in common. They almost uniformly have these things in common. Trust issues. There are huge trust issues. There is betrayal. There is broken relationships. There is traumatic loss of values, of beliefs, of individuals no longer in their lives because of shunning or disconnection. So there tends to, this is almost uniformly true for anybody coming out of these groups. Um, they're going to have problems uh, with trust. 
they're gonna have real problems with it. I sure as hell did. And I, and I don't know a single person I have ever met in the entire Scientology, Jehovah's Witness, in any of these groups who didn't tell me or who I didn't observe having trust issues. <laughs> and it makes sense why they would. They were promised the sun, moon, and stars, and they were not delivered the sun, moon, and stars. They were uh, sort of pushed down into the swamp and mud and made to feel like a lower life form uh, the entire time they were in their, in their cult situation. So uh, they're not quite ready to start trusting other people or groups right away as a general rule. Uh, then there is a history of systemic abuse, uh, whether it's physical or psychological or both. And this is also a big, big thing because you can go join a, a chess club or the Boy Scouts or uh, the Democratic Party <laughs> and come up, you know, at some point along the line, you quit the group because it's neither no longer interesting to you or it's no longer fun or maybe it's taking up too much of your time or a litany of other reasons could exist. When you come out of a destructive cult, it's a little bit of a different situation. This was an immersive situation that you were involved in. Your whole life was taken over by this. Very few people who go into these other groups have their entire lives taken over by them. Uh, that's one of the reasons we call them destructive cults, because it's destructive to a person's uh, sense and sensibility, right? Uh, so there's abuse there. There's emotional abuse. There's, or I should say, psychological abuse. And often there's physical abuse of one kind or another. I was physically abused while I was in Scientology, both with overwork, undersleep, underfed. I was beat on. I had a number of things happen to me. I broke my finger. I uh, wasn't allowed to go to the hospital all night long. Uh, that was rough because that was the single most painful thing that ever happened to me. doesn't seem like much breaking a finger, but uh, when you split a bone at the tip of your finger, trust me, it's very, very painful. <laughs> I did not enjoy that. Um, so people coming out of these groups tend to have uh, a, a history of abuse. Then you have financial and or time loss or both. So people have invested their money, they've invested their time, they've invested both. I gave 27 years of my life to this group. That's a lot of time. And uh, to think that I'm not going to look back at that and go, wow, I wasted some time. A little unrealistic, right? Uh, there could also be, these, those are the things that are pretty common to everybody, but there could also be forms of PTSD, there could be survivor's guilt, and there could be a ton of hindsight bias. And by that I mean you look back at your situation or your circumstances and you blame yourself or you blame, well, basically yourself for not knowing better, for being stupid, for falling for things that you now see are not true, but at the time you bought into it, right? All that deception I was talking about. There's a lot of it in these groups. Every single one of them. Again, that's why we call them destructive cults. A regular run-of-the-mill cult, <laughs> we're okay with those groups. You want to have uh, an extreme chess club? Go right ahead, right? But the minute that you are, you know, physically punishing people, psychologically, emotionally abusing them over their chess games, uh, you know, then you're then you're crossing lines, and of course, the deception is is all part of this. So, hey everyone, I want to tell you about the Great Courses Plus. The reason I want to tell you about this is because this is a resource I believe in, and it's something that promotes the, all of the ideas that I have been promoting on my channel for years: critical thinking, rationality, education. These are the tools that we need in order to live more rational, critical, and productive lives, really. Uh, there isn't one size fits all. There is no cult for living a better life. We all have to kind of deal with it ourselves. How do we do that? Well, education is a great start. And The Great Courses Plus is all about that. This is a streaming service that was basically founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone. And they actually get the real deal in terms of professors and professionals putting together courses that you guys, I think, would be very, very interested in. I mean, we're talking about courses dealing with communication, privacy and national security, the history of religion, violence, philosophy, and a host of other topics, not just theoretical, in-your-head sort of ivory tower things, but practical things that you can really sink your teeth into and get something out of. 
There are literally thousands of lectures and courses that you can take advantage of. And the Great Courses Plus offers unlimited access to all of these things. So I actually recommend, first off, checking out a course called Your Deceptive Mind. It is all about critical thinking. I have been going through the course and it has been really, really amazing. And right now, because I'm doing this, these advertisement spots, The Great Courses is offering you guys uh, a special limited time offer. It's a full free month of unlimited access to the entire library. You can hook up right now, get on The Great Courses Plus, and check out everything you want in a month for free. Okay, that's what you can do with this. I have to sign up using the link that I'm showing on screen right now, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. It is very critical that you use that URL, which is why I've also included it in the show notes and description below. Start your free month now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's greatcoursesplus.com slash critical. I hope, I hope you do, and let me know in the comments what you think. Okay, um, status is often still a thing. People come out of these groups, they're very insecure. Status is, you know, the hierarchy uh, within the cult is generally something that the person lived their entire life around. They wanted to move up in status. They wanted to get closer to the cult leader, uh, whether that was through intense belief, whether that was through trance meditation, whether that was through... Um, joining staff and then the Sea Org in Scientology, moving up the ladder, uh, going up the bridge to total freedom in Scientology, moving up the OT levels. There's tons of status connected with that. People define themselves by that status. And when they come out of those groups, that status no longer means anything. No one in the big wide world cares what OT level you did. They don't. Nobody cares. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. But you invested hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars in it. So it sure means a lot to you. And you're still very aware of that status even after coming out of the group. You know, nobody comes out of these groups and says, oh, well, none of it meant anything. It's all fine. I don't care anymore. And, and I'll just drop it. I've not seen one person ever able to just brush it all off like that. Usually it's, uh, it's a lot harder. And that status button is, is a big part of it because then lacking that status, there's a lot of insecurity. Um, there's also a lot of effort to maintain being right about the decisions and, and actions that the person engaged in because who wants to look back at all that time and go, well, every single part of it was wrong. You know, every single part of it wasn't wrong, but sifting out what was right and what was wrong takes a lot of time and a lot of work. And when you first come out of these groups and are, st are first wrestling with this stuff, it is difficult to sort out what is right and wrong, what's important and what's not. You're, you're between two worlds. You were in one bubble world of cultic belief, and now you're back out in the real world where all the values are upside down and all the, the importances are upside down. So, so this is something that a lot of people coming out of these groups struggle with. There are also a lot of remnants of us versus them thinking. People coming out of these groups tend to be, they, they're prone to take sides very easily and go to extreme ends. Um, they, you know, it's kind of all or nothing thinking. And this really can actually even... In regards to the cult, they can have an extreme idea now where they come out and everything about it is hateful and wrong and bad and horrible and every single thing that they ever did that ever had anything to do with it was totally wrong and they were just, it was all just vicious lies and nothing but abuse and you have to wonder at that moment, well, wait a second. <laughs> Why were you there for so long then, right? Uh, because very, very few of these situations involve physical imprisonment. You know, generally speaking, people are, are you know, uh, gradually fed, you know, indoctrinated into these groups. And when they come out of it, there is a whole lot of this culture shock and, and other shock. Um, but they were in it because it did something positive and good and useful for them. However small, however meaningless now, at the time, it meant something. 
because they gave over more of themselves to the group and more of themselves and more of themselves. So people don't do that because they're, you know, being beat on or because they're being, they know they're being lied to or because they're being harmed. They do it because they feel that there's some benefit uh, being, in being involved in this. So coming out, you'll tend to see some people go extreme other end. And, you know, it, it was all white before, now it's all black, right? And that kind of thinking is not just uh, around the cult. It tends to, you know, pervade their entire life. So they can be kind of extreme about some things, and they can get quite upset at other people who are not also at the same level of extremism. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that it, it, for me, and I've seen it with others, but again, I'm, I'm not saying that this is universal. I'm not saying everybody experiences this, but a lot of people do. You come out, you've been at one extreme end of a spectrum, and so you kind of slide over to the other extreme end, and ah, rah, rah, rah. there's some catharsis there. But if you stay over there, that can become its own extremist problem. So people tend to, over time, slide back more towards the middle as they start realizing that, oh, well, there were some good things, or, well, there was some stuff about this that wasn't really that bad. Or at least I can understand now why I got involved with it, because it, you know, it looked good, and it felt good, and it seemed good, but, you know, eh, well, I can see now that it wasn't. Um, and they, you know, but the, but the, the, the initial shock and, and freak out and, and upsets, those tend to, you know, fade over time as they should. So you kind of move towards the middle, but being more in the middle or being, you know, not quite on these extreme ends can be very uh, difficult uh, because other people who are fresh out of these groups or other people who have not yet sort of toned down their thinking or are still over at that, you know, it was all white, now it's all black, they'll target those people who kind of move toward the middle. That'll happen, right? Uh, and that's uncomfortable and difficult and, and, uh, and problematic <laughs> often on, uh, on relationships amongst the X community. Then, um, Oh yeah, you even get this. You get uh, you get folks uh, in the X world who get mad at other people in the X world because they're not being uh, they're not saying the right things or doing the right things or acting in the right way towards the cult, right? Meaning they're not in full. You know, Bill is pissed off at Joe because Joe won't go to a protest or Joe won't go give an interview or Joe won't. Uh, say that L. Ron Hubbard was the most evil man who ever existed, right? Well, you're just, you're still brainwashed. You're still in the cult, right? You'll get this kind of thing going on. This happens a lot, way more than it should. Uh, yeah, so that happens. And of course, also, also part of the personality package with people who are coming out of these groups is there's fear, there is, there, there is edginess, and there's a tendency to assume the worst. Uh, in certain situations, right? And it's all sensible, and it all makes sense why, per, why a person would be in this kind of a state. They have been betrayed. They have, they have had their values turned upside down. I mean, you, you get the idea. To assert, as Alonzo has, that people in such a condition don't need any help or therapy or counseling is not just ignorant. That is actually just wholly irrational. I mean, can you, you know, you could use some help from some, from some people who have a bit of an objective view about the whole process and what's happened. And to kind of guide the person and help them out and make, maybe help them figure out a softer landing back into this real world that, you know, everybody's living in, right? Not everybody needs counseling or therapy, but then again, would it really be so bad or harmful? I mean, I've gotten therapy. And I know lots of other people who are involved in Scientology and other groups who have too. And it was so far almost uniformly helpful for the people that I've talked to. Certainly helped me out. And I didn't even get that much of it. But you don't necessarily need, you know, if you needed, if you, <laughs> in Scientology you get thousands of hours of auditing. Well, you know, maybe just, you know, 10 hours of some therapy might help find some things that might help chill some of that stuff out, you know. 
Uh, okay, so so that's the first part of this that I wanted to kind of talk about is sort of the the nature of the uh, of where people's heads are at in this community, uh, in any of these ex cult communities, right? There's there there's a lot of tempers flare very easily. There's edginess, and there are like I said, there are trust issues. There are massive trust issues. So. By that, I mean that a small betrayal, a small lie, a small deception, a small problem, a small issue between two people in the X world, you know, somebody out in the real world who's never been involved in any of this might look at their disagreement or problem or upset and go, well, what's the big deal? But, but these two folks who have the upset, it's the biggest problem in the world. It's huge. It's nuclear, right? And, and relationships break up over this kind of thing. I am sorry to say I have engaged in that myself over the years. It's, you know, I have had a temper. I have gone off on people. I have said things I have later regretted. I have unfriended and disconnected from people over nothing. Really stupid stuff. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm sorry that those things happened. You know, I wish that they hadn't. I wish that I had been able to be more even-tempered and more understanding and more objective. I mean, that's what I preach here. But, you know, it's difficult. Life is life, and emotions are emotions, and, and these things get the best of us sometimes, and, and I'm no exception to any of this. So, um, so I've lived all of this, and this is, this is what I'm talking about here. Um, then you run into this other thing that happens in these communities, which is factions. This is the reason, this is the number one reason why the whole anti-Scientology cult, quote-unquote, assertion is just is so much hot air. If you, you know, there are personalities in these communities, right? There always will be. There will always be opinion leaders or thought leaders in these groups. In, Scientology, in the ex-Scientology world, it's a small number of people. I'm not even going to get into naming names or talking about the different groups because I, that, it doesn't matter. They change. They morph. One person will be in one group one day, and then there'll be some betrayal or some problem or some issue or disagreement, and then they'll slide over to another one. There's alliances are changing all the time. Relationships change. It's all really rather soap opera-ish and silly. We all try to, you know, in our more lucid moments, <laughs> I think, we try to see that we're all fighting the same enemy, which is, of course, Scientology in, in my case. Uh, I've broadened out to all these destructive cults now, but um, but we can lose sight of that with the personality conflicts and differences. Or when one thought leader has one idea and another thought leader has another idea, and they're interpreting, let's say, some passage uh, in the in the cultic works, and one group thinks it means one thing, and the other group means, thinks it means another thing, and they can they they can have these wars over this stuff, and it's just so much drama. So much nonsense, and it's kind of dismaying how stupid and simple some of these disagreements, the, the basis of some of these things. It really is. Uh, that being said, I also understand how invested some people get in some of these, and some of the disagreements are not petty and are not just small, simple little misinterpretations of passages or lines, but involve uh, dealing with some of these abusive conditions that some people were under and the trauma and upset that, that lasts for sometimes years as a result of some of that trauma. And when a person's on an, in an edgy, anxious, fearful place because of that and somebody says the wrong thing and triggers them, you know, it can be a war. Maybe the person shouldn't have said what they said to trigger that person. Maybe that person should go get some therapy. Maybe there's, you know, maybe both things can be true at the same time. Uh, maybe both of those things aren't true and, some, and there's some other person, you know, who is involved and is sort of fomenting conflict. I've seen that. I, there are people in these communities who exist only to create drama. They are drama kings, drama queens. They are uh, gossip mongers. Th those people exist. Why wouldn't they? They exist in almost every group. The percentages of, of people who love talking about the salacious bits of other people's lives. I mean, this is, this is uh, almost an Olympic sport in the United States. So, uh, so of course, this sort of activity is going to happen in these communities. Uh, of course it is. And, it's, and it makes things difficult. 
The thing about cults is these kinds of things that I'm talking about don't happen as readily in them because everybody's kind of on the same page in these cultic groups by force. There's, there's for, like, all the factors I talked about already with uh, coercive persuasion and all that. So you can get a group of people and you can force them to all be on the same page and if somebody falls out of line, you force them back in. There is no mechanism within the ex-Scientology community or any other ex-cult community to enforce the will of the thought leaders on the people down below, except communication. You know, people uttering or saying their, or arguing their opinions back and forth. And that's not abuse. There's nothing abusive about people trading or exchanging words. There is no ethics officers in the, in the ex-Scientology world. There are no masters at arms. There's no RPF. There's no prison. There's no hole. None of those things exist. Those things can only exist in a cultic environment. So to assert that this is that the ex-Scientology world is a cult, how? <laughs> you see what I mean? There is no mechanism to enforce the will of the thought leaders except communication. And that is real world. That's how the real world works, right? And unfortunately, we live in a society now where free speech has uh, taken on some really some very strange ideas connected with free speech and uh, with abuse, right? And by that, I mean that there are people who think that words alone uh, are somehow physically uh, abusive or harmful to people. When they are not, they are just words and ideas. And expressing those words and ideas does not threaten the lives or, or livelihood or anything of other people. And I know there's a ton of people right now thinking, Chris, you're wrong. What about the Nazis? What about this? What about that? Listen to the words I'm saying. The words themselves cannot hurt anyone. That is what I just said. That's all I said. Words do create action. And those actions can be harmful. And where, as I've said before, where people are inciting violence, inciting abuse, okay, good. Let's let's talk about that. Let's let's deal with that. Let's get that. You know, let's let's uh, nip that on the butt at the bud, right? But uh, but expressing one's opinion about an idea, no, that's not abuse. There's nothing wrong with that. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be censoring ideas like that. So. Uh, so that's really the only mechanism that exists in the big wide world in a, in a general sense to enforce the will of these, of these thought leaders. Uh, so it's not a cult. Doesn't doesn't fit any of the uh, characteristics or descriptions of uh, said cult. So that's that's my assertion on that. I am curious and interested in what you guys have to say about this. Those were all of my immediate thoughts on the subject. Um, I'm sure I could have probably come up with more to say about all this, but I think I've, I think I've given it a pretty good overview. Uh, any questions, comments, or feedback you guys have on this topic? Anything else about it you think I might need to address that I might have forgotten about or missed in this episode? Let me know in the comments section, and, uh, and maybe I'll take it up in a future episode. Thanks for coming around and watching. Please check out my uh, Amazon uh, storefront for any books uh, that I have recommended reading because there are some really good ones there. You can check out my critical merchandise at the uh, Spreadshirt store. Link is below. And, of course, if you're enjoying my content and what I have to say here, consider supporting me through Patreon because that's what keeps the lights on and keeps the show uh, being produced. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.